Hello and welcome to the Radio Rebeluna podcast with me, Danny Coffey. Low pay is part of many people's lived experience. To what extent is outlined in a recent report by SIPTU Trade Union entitled Low Pay Republic. We have the author of the report on the line, SIPTU analyst Michael Taft. Many thanks for taking our call. Thank you for having me on. I suppose the first question is, what is low pay? What is it? How, how do you calculate it? And what are the main findings of the report? Well, low pay is defined as uh, uh, two-thirds uh, of the what's called the median hourly earnings. And what that means, a median hourly earnings is that level at which 50% of the population earn below and 50% earn above. So it's midway point in terms of the, uh, of the wage distribution. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, median pay, and this, this data relates to 2018, but it won't have changed all that much in terms of percentages. But the median pay in uh, 2018 was 17.97 an hour. So what that meant was that 50% of their working population earned below 17.97 an hour and uh, 50% earned above. So they calculate uh, low pay, and this is an international calculation, as two-thirds of that amount. So we're talking about uh, a low pay threshold of about 11 euros 86 an hour. Uh, if you earn that or below, you are categorized as low paid. And when you take that calculation, we find that 20% of Irish workers, or about 370,000 uh, men and women, uh, are below that threshold and are categorized as low paid. Now, we're well above the, I think it's eighth from the bottom in the EU and in the OECD we're actually worse. Uh, I think we're three from the bottom. Why have we such low pay and what's the cause of us having such low pay in the Irish economy? Well, there are a number of causes for low pay, but the primary reason is the lack of collective bargaining in what can be called the traditional low-paid sectors. Uh, now, you know, the two biggest ones are... Um, hospitality, hotels and restaurants, and pubs, and the retail sector. Uh, with collective bargaining, which occurs in almost every other EU country, what happens is that the employer representatives of, say, let's take the retail sector, of the retailers, and the employee representatives, which would be the trade unions representing workers, yeah. would actually sit down and negotiate wages, working conditions, things like overtime, shift allowances, uh, basic pay, increments, even social benefits, um, uh, such as illness benefit, you know, company illness benefit and the like. And when they, if they come to an agreement, then that agreement is spread throughout the sector. It becomes the new floor. Uh, it's because of the lack of that floor that we have so many falling into low pay and so many falling back towards the national minimum wage. So that is a primary driver uh, uh, in, in terms of the levels of low pay. Now, there's other reasons as well. We have a, 
uh, a greater reliance on the hospitality sector uh, than mo- than other EU countries. I mean, you know, because yeah. basically because we have a lot of tourism. So you look at other countries with high levels of tourism, France and Austria and the like, uh, and we will be up there. So we have greater, more economic activity in the hospitality sector proportionately. But, of course, you could address that uh, by having collective bargaining. Uh, so uh, it all really comes back to the ability of workers to be able to bargain with their employer, to bargain together with their employer, to raise uh, the wage floors in different sectors. Because, for instance, in the hospitality sector, over 50% of employees um, are, low are considered low pay. And, you know, there'd be a, sim- uh, for instance, in the wholesale retail, it's about 30%. So that's well above our average of 20%. And you'd find, like, other services, which would include things like hairdressers, is also extremely high. Uh, administrative services in which you would find contract cleaners, gardeners, security guards, that's over a third. And these are all sectors with very low levels of trade union membership, but more importantly, uh, very little sectoral bargaining. Uh, in other words, bargaining across the sector. Just looking at the report there as well, you have the average across the EU is 83 or 80, 84% collective bargaining. In Ireland, it's 33%. Like, that's, um, there's a massive dif- difference between the average in the EU and what we have here. How will we make up that, that difference? And does precarious work have a, a lot to do with that? Well, just to take the second question first, precarious work would have a lot to do with that. You're going to find people who are in underemployment or working in the gig economy and all that, they are, uh, or even kind of what's called marginal part-time employment, um, which means, you know, very few hours per week. You're going to find these groups, uh, are the, uh, uh, find these groups most susceptible to low pay. Temporary agency workers would be another, which yeah. would be, uh, uh, you know, exposed to low pay because of their precarious uh, working conditions. Less so for those in full-time employment. But let's not make, let's not make the mistake of thinking that um, low pay is just a problem, say, in hospitality and retail uh, and other kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, similar low paid sectors that I mentioned beforehand. It, uh, low pay is actually endemic throughout the economy. Uh, nearly 15% of uh, people working in manufacturing, which is characterized by full-time employment, yeah. uh, nearly 15% uh, are uh, low-paid, 15% in the health sector, and uh, 20% in the transport sector. I mean, even in quite high-income sectors, uh, such as the professional technical sector, one in 12 people are still low paid. Uh, uh, and similarly with, uh, uh, similarly with, um, information and communication, you know, about 6%. So, uh, even in high income uh, sectors, uh, you'll find low pay and you'll find low pay going throughout the economy. It just happens to be worse in those sectors. Now, the reason why we don't have collective bargaining is quite simple. 
in other countries, employees have a statutory right to collective bargaining. Right. When employees um, uh, want to bargain collectively with their employers, their employers are required to. Here it's voluntary. Uh, it? We don't. Huh? It's voluntary in Ireland. Well, yeah, it's, that's what they call it. They call it voluntary. It's actually really not voluntary. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But here we don't have that statutory right. We do have some sectoral collective bargaining bodies, like what are called joint labor committees, but employers can um, uh, refuse to attend those. And if they do, there's no comeback on them. There's nothing for the employee to do. Now, people say, well, this is part of the voluntary system, but that's not quite true because employers have the right to bargain collectively. For instance, owners, if you have a firm that's owned by 50 or 60 people, they use management as their agency to bargain with the employees. So they yeah. bargain collectively. Yeah. But they don't recognize employees' agency, which is by and large a trade union. They, you know, they're not required to uh, recognize, acknowledge, or sit down with the employees' uh, uh, bargaining, uh, bargaining agency. So employers take they they can voluntarily take on collective bargaining but employees can't no and that that is the real that's the the real inequality in the workplace between workers and employers is that written into the 1990 industrial relations act is it that's is that part of that or have i got that wrong no it wouldn't no the 1990 act wouldn't really uh impact on directly on issues of collective bargaining. Right. This is this is long term. This is just the very nature of industrial relations in Ireland. What you do need is um, a statutory intervention uh, to provide a framework whereby employees can take up the right to collective bargaining. Because otherwise, uh, in many cases, workers have to go out on strike. They have to go out yeah. on the picket line. They have to give up, you know, uh, you know, their day, you know, their daily wage. You know, if they're out on strike for a day or two days or three days, they, 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 they lose wage for, they lose their income from work for that. Uh, so, you know, they, they, in many cases, uh, such actions are successful. In many cases, they are not. Now, you know, there's been a one good success story. Uh, uh, out of this, and that is the Joint Labor Committee, which is a body which will bargain sectorally over the whole sector, uh, that was set up in the childcare sector. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that was after, to be honest, that was after years of pressure. Years of pressure to get the government to do something specifically in the childcare sector. And the reason why they acted was not only because of that pressure, but because quite simply, the childcare sector was becoming unsustainable. There was a 40% turnover of staff in the sector. And uh, providers were finding it difficult uh, to recruit and retain personnel. And one of the main reasons why is because it's low paid. Nearly 60% of workers in the childcare sector earn below the living wage. So uh, there are, you know, until there is a, an intervention by the state into industrial relations, which will vindicate workers' rights to collective bargaining, 
uh, it will all it will it will continue to be quite weak, except in those those areas where workers do get organized. But then they have to, you know, they may well have to engage in industrial action to vindicate the right. Would though the the childcare sector as well? If you look at the report there, I think it's nearly a quarter of women are low paid. Uh, the EU average is eighteen percent, and in Sweden, which is top of the class, with four point four percent. Because of the child care sector is so expensive and so uh, volatile here in Ireland, is does that that contribute to uh, women, a, a large percentage of women having to take up low paid uh, work that's proximate to where they're living, proximate to the school, and that because because of the, the way the child care sector is. Well, I, I think again you have we have to take up you know take take a step back uh, on this. Actually, it's not just childcare. If you look at the caring professions, uh, you know, home help for uh, older people and people with disabilities, uh, private nursing homes, uh, these are sectors, of course, where there's a large, you know, the high, high proportion of them are women. In fact, I think yeah. 98% of employees in the childcare sector are women. Uh, I don't have the percentages offhand for home care and private nursing homes, but I would imagine it's quite similar. Um, and, and what we don't do uh, is we don't value caring work. That's that's a yeah. political decision. Now you know, you'll find that um, uh, employees, uh, say in the home care sector, uh, employed by the HSC, are better paid. They have better working conditions. Uh, but that's a function of the fact that they are organized and the employer negotiates directly with uh, the, the uh, workers through the trade unions. That's not the case, though, in the private sector. Uh, so there are many causes uh, for low pay among women. Uh, for instance, uh, women don't get as many career promotion opportunities because of discrimination against women through gender pay gap. Uh, through the fact that, um, you know, they, they have to leave the workforce intermittently if they have children. And we have such a, as you point out, sector, it's a very poor childcare sector compared to other European countries. Uh, women are much, uh, the women, um, uh, are more likely to work part time than men. Uh, that will also depress wages. They work part time in sectors like hospitality or cleaning. Or retail, so there's a number of uh, uh, barriers to women receiving uh, proper pay. Now, as you pointed out, um, in Sweden, uh, uh, only four percent of women are are low paid, and that's actually about the same as the national average. So, in Sweden, they have managed to um, uh, they've managed to actually not only have extremely low levels of low pay, but they also have very little difference in low pay between men and women. And that's a function of the fact that ninety uh, percent of um, uh, workers are covered by collective bargaining agreements. Just moving on to another bit of the the report as well. The EU average, I think, it's twenty eight percent now, uh, but Sweden uh, of Temporary contract employee, employers, uh, Sweden is 10%. We're 30.7%. That, that would have a, a large bearing on the, the amount of low pay as well, because people are, 
they're not joining trade unions because they're, oh, I'm only here for six months or whatever, a couple of months, and they're moving on again. Uh, trying to get people into much more uh, permanent positions, that'll go a long way to bringing down low pay as well. It would, yes, because if you look at the temporary contract sector uh, among um, uh, employees, now, it only makes up about, say, about 10, 12% of the workforce. But that is usually, uh, it's usually a high proportion of that are young people. Young people are yeah. particularly affected by uh, temporary contracts. Uh, there are, it, it is because of a lack of a collective agreement in the workplace because one of the great things about collective agreements in the workplace is they tend, they not only tend, it's been shown that they drive up wage floors and they improve conditions. So if you have a collective agreement uh, uh, that's been negotiated between the trade unions and the employers, those kind of situations like a temporary contract in, uh, uh, employee would be covered. Even if the worker isn't a member of the union. You know, because all workers are covered by the collective agreement. Yeah. Uh, another worrying feature is that um, it, among temporary contract workers, 70% are on a contract of one year or less. Now, before the financial crash, it was only about 35%, only, thir- you know. Right. So uh, what we're seeing is uh, we may not be seeing a rise in the overall level of temporary contract workers, but what we are seeing is that they are becoming even more temporary uh, with the increase of uh, people working for less than one year. Such people do not have bargaining power with their employers. In many cases, they're just grateful to have a job, hoping they can add it to the CV, hoping they might become permanent. And the fact is, joining a trade union is a red flag uh, for many employers. And the employee will not be thanked for joining a trade union or uh, trying to organize their fellow workers in a trade union. Uh, they can be, uh, if not victimized in the formal sense, the chances of getting another year's temporary contract, never, never mind becoming permanent, uh, would be greatly diminished. So temporary contract employees are in a very vulnerable state. And as I say, that tends to be, that's a high proportion of that is young people. It is. There's 34% of young people are in low paid professions here. The EU average is 26. But just in the report as well, you reference an EU directive on low pay. Can you explain that, your support for it? Okay, there's this, it's called the EU Directive on Fair Wages. Uh, it used to be called EU Directive on Minimum Wages. But it does two things. Uh, one, it tries to, uh, throughout all the EU countries, um, uh, uh, require uh, countries to systematize the formulation of the minimum wage where they have one. Some countries yeah. don't have a minimum wage, and they're not forcing them, forcing them to have one. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute, those countries that don't have a minimum wage. Uh, but they're trying to get them to systematize it uh, and to set um, uh, to set minimum floors uh, for the minimum wage that is in relation to, say, the average wage or the median wage, as I discussed. In other words, to drive up the wage floor uh, because low pay, it's 
it's a problem throughout the EU now, particularly a problem here, but throughout the EU. So that's the first point. You know, they're trying to put in a set of regulations and a set of indicators which will drive up the minimum wage uh, where that operates. Uh, the second part, though, is uh, though they are not requiring countries to do anything, they don't make any specific requirements on what countries should do to introduce collective bargaining, which they rightly described as one of the most effective instruments to reduce low pay. They're not requiring specific uh, uh, measures because, you know, labor, labor, industrial relations and labor markets are so different across the EU. You couldn't have a one-size-fits-all. But what they are requiring is where there is less than 70% of people covered by a collective agreement, where that occurs, the government must publish a plan of how they intend to increase that proportion up to 70%. Now, as you rightly said, in Ireland, it's only about 33%. Yeah. And it gets even worse in the private sector because, you know, public sector workers bargain collectively with their employer, which happens to be the state. Uh, in the private sector, it's 15%. So our, if, this, if this directive is passed, that would mean that the Irish government would have to set out a plan to raise the proportion of um, those covered by collective bargaining agreements from about 33% to 70%. Yeah, and that would be the that would be the you know a very positive impact because it would put uh, it would force the government to actually come up with a plan. It would force it into the public debate. Uh, it would you know uh, it would allow trade unions and employer organizations to to intervene in a more effective way to show how this could be could be done. So that would be the impact on the agreement. Now, unfortunately. Uh, the government, uh, along with a handful of other countries, is trying to water down that directive by asking that it only be a set of recommendations rather than a binding directive. So, you know, uh, the sure. trade union movement has uh, opposed this, but it still remains to be seen whether this will be a binding directive or whether it'll just be a set of recommendations, in which case any nation state can, any, any member state uh, can just ignore it. The government's argument is about competitiveness. That's one of the things, even though when they were trying to drop the minimum wage uh, during the economic crash that time, it was about competitiveness. But 70% of our economy is the small and medium. Um, it's not. It's got nothing to do with international trade. It's, it's the domestic economy. Um, th- that would be one argument there, but they, they, it's always directed at com- competitiveness. Um, Joe Biden is also uh, looking at collective bargaining for unions. He hasn't gone near the minimum wage, but I think I, I read that somewhere, and he was. Uh, I may be wrong on that, but he's he's going to um, give more powers to unions to collectively bargain in the U.S. Uh, with the European Union, though. In your opinion, do you think that directive will go through, or or where do we stand with it? Well, you know, all this is about negotiations, you know, at the ministerial level and then the head of government level and all that. We're quite hopeful that it will go through. Uh, We don't think that the arguments for making it a recommendation are sustainable. 
uh, in many respects, uh, our practice regarding low pay already complies with the directive because, for instance, they want it systematized, which we do. We have a low pay commission uh, that makes these recommendations annually. Um, so the only real issue is that they would be required to um, uh, come up with a plan to increase collective bargaining agreements. And they already have in the program for government numerous references to stakeholders, yeah. to those people who have a stake in the economic activity, whether that's an employer or whether that's an employee. Those are the two main stakeholders. Also, communities can have stakes, suppliers, and like that. But usually, it's the employers and the employees that are the main stakeholders. And they have numerous references of how they want to include more stakeholders. Well, collective bargaining is the ultimate stakeholder experience. Uh, so you can't, in the one sense, you know, make these rhetorical gestures in a program for government towards stakeholderism. And then, on the other hand, when you're asked to say, well, how are you going to increase that? Say, oh, no, well, we, we don't want to be asked or required to set out a plan to actually implement what we've already done in the program. I don't think it's a sustainable argument. Uh, I certainly hope not. But, I, you know, I have no particular insight right. as to what the state of play is in, in, in Brussels. Uh, and as always, these usually, these things come out with some sort of compromise. But uh, it does appear that the EU, the EU Commission is quite intent on strengthening collective bargaining um, uh, because it is the principal weapon, uh, principal instrument to reduce low pay. But let's come back to this competitiveness argument. Yeah. Because every time workers look for a pay rise, they're hit with the thing competitiveness. When they look for better social benefits, they're hit with the competitiveness argument when they want to bargain collectively and so on and so forth. But if you look at other, uh, our peer group in Europe, other high income countries like, say, the Netherlands, Austria, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, if you look at all those countries, they have much higher levels of collective bargaining and yet they also have higher rankings in terms of business competitiveness. You know, these yeah. things like the Global Competitiveness Index produces these annual rankings. Uh, that's the crowd that, you know, hosts the Davis Davis Summit uh, yeah. uh, 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 every year up in the Swiss mountains. Uh, and a number of other surveys show that uh, actually they're much more competitive. Uh, that's because they have higher levels of productivity, which collective bargaining drives. They have lower levels of low pay. There is nothing worse for an economy's productivity, an economy's efficiency, than carrying around high levels of low pay. It is extremely costly. So uh, the fact is that a competitive economy actually produces uh, greater participation by the stakeholders, drives up productivity, and drives up wages. So they, you know, they all people, when people start talking about wages and competitiveness, they automatically assume that you become more competitive when you cut people's pay. But that is just simply not the case. Yeah, you outlined that in the high cost of low pay at the end of the report. I think it's on page seven or eight of that. But uh, it's basically... The less money in the economy, the, le the lower the wages are, the less money in the economy, the less spend in businesses, uh, the localized economy. 
and also as well the turnover of of uh, staff because they're low paid they're always going to be looking for something you know some be- better conditions or better pay um also as well a thing that always strikes me when when we're talk, talking about low pay and uh rising pay pay and that is the cost of 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 living the the prices that we pay relative to the the, the pay we get if you have rising wages does that automatically translate into rising prices as as well and should there be some type of cap on prices well okay uh that's a big question regarding should there be cap on prices uh that's a huge debate uh, uh i'm not sure that we can get into all the details uh obviously you know i i obviously there's a role for caps on prices we have caps on rent increases yeah uh, the government's going to cap, uh, as part of their subsidy for higher pay in the childcare sector, uh, they'll be capping, uh, childcare, uh, fees. In fact, we're one of the very few countries in Europe that don't regulate childcare fees. Uh, so, uh, but you know, to, to be honest, when you start mentioning things like price caps and price control, uh, you know, a huge argument breaks out of yeah. the room. Uh, but let's, let's look at this. Let's look at two things. One, let's look at, um, uh, the issues regarding, uh, does increasing pay lead to higher prices? Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. Don't forget, in- rising pay increases business income. Yeah. So, you know, that's taking a little bit of pressure off the business in terms of paying for it. It also increases productivity. For instance, high staff turnover, and by the way, in the hospitality sector, uh, staff turno- turnover has been a problem since even before the crash. It goes back 20 years. Uh, there were employer groups, you know, uh, complaining about level, high levels of staff turnover. But it costs a lot of money to replace staff, to, to recruit yeah. staff, to train them. Uh, usually in the first, you know, in the first few weeks or few months, they may not be as product productive as somebody who's been there a year or two or three on the job. So uh, there's a very high cost in terms of staff turnover. If you can reduce staff turnover, and that's what higher wages do, uh, um, then the company actually saves money. So you have a win-win effect for businesses. They uh, increase business income, and they lower their, you know, their... Uh, staff turnover costs, which means that the push towards higher prices is um, uh, is limited. And, you know, uh, prices rise, but that can be due to a number, number of other factors. Um, for instance, we are seeing prices rising in the economy now, but it's not due yeah. to wage increases. It's due to supply chain problems um, right. from the, the pandemic. For instance, a simple thing such as transporting uh, goods um, by uh, sea because of the uh, impact of the pandemic and the limited number of ships and all sorts of supply chain problems, it's costing 10 times as much right. as it did prior to the pandemic. That's nothing to do with wages. Energy prices are going up. That has not, nothing to do with wages. Now, it is true that we are a high 
cost um, economy. But the interesting thing is that if we go, to, say, to the living wage, which is a wage uh, that is calculated to uh, provide, you know, workers with the, the, the minimum adequate that they need to have a decent standard of living, and it's calculated by the Living Wage Technical Group. It was calculated when it was first launched back in 2014 at 11.45 an hour. Now it's 12.90. That's a huge increase. Yeah. That's you know, uh, nearly one, well, nearly a euro fifty increase in the uh, living wage. The interesting thing, though, is that if you exclude housing, the living wage would have fallen. Right. Would have actually fallen. The driving force behind so much of the wage and price pressures is the cost of housing. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, if you're having to pay a higher mortgage because it's a higher priced house, you're going to have less to spend uh, uh, in the economy. Same thing with rents. Uh, so that is what's been driving up prices because as workers have to, you know, experience higher mortgage payments or higher rents, they then have to try to drive up their wages to at least, so that at least they're running to stand still yeah. with these rising housing costs. And that's why things like rents and property prices are such a drag on the productive economy. They're a drag on businesses that, who are actually Paying pay, they're giving pay increases, but it's going in one pocket of the worker and out the other to the landlord, or to the uh, bank, uh, or the you know the the mor the mortgage provider. So, to to what extent do wages drive up prices? The evidence is 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 not that if they do, that it's only just what it would be considered a normal and healthy rate of inflation, something like one to two percent. You know, that's yeah, where that's kind of pitched at. Right. But look at it this way. I mean, in the report, we highlight, uh, say, two countries which have, in fact, Denmark has even higher living costs than we do. Uh, we have the second highest in the EU. Denmark is the highest. <clears throat> then you have countries like Sweden and Finland, you know, the Nordic countries, which yeah. have notoriously high living costs. And yet they have much lower levels of low pay. They also Again, have... It, they also have better public services. They have a lot of services which we don't have. Um, there was a statistic there I was looking at. Um, for people in rural Ireland now that if they wanted to give up their car, there was no alternative. There was no public transport there. So 60-odd 60 60 percent, like we don't have the services that those uh, Nordic countries have as well. That's another part of it. Even if we look at... Uh, Germany's low pay. They, Germany, they have services that we don't have. That that which adds to the uh, the misery of low pay pay in Ireland. Well, that that's correct. I mean, you you talk about the issues in rural transport. Uh, for instance, take Norway. Again, it's a Nor no, it's not in the EU, uh, though it has. It's in kind of a, a partnership in the EU, but it's a Nordic country. High living costs. Uh, and a lot of rural, uh, uh, a lot of rural communities, a high level of uh, rural population. But the way that they are compensating for, uh, because he's right, sometimes public transport, you know, it's hard for public transports to get at very, you know, very rural uh, portions. You know, they yeah. can do it, you know, you can do it to some extent, but, uh, uh, you know, it's not like you're 
and, you know, the bus stop is just about 200 meters from where I live, and the bus comes every 10 or 15 minutes. Well, you're not going to get that rural, rural Ireland. But what they do in Norway is they have made such a drive for electric vehicles that now nearly 40% of new cars that are being purchased there are electric vehicles because they put in an infrastructure for um, uh, electric cars so that, you know, there's no problem in terms of places to go to get it charged, just like petrol stations. Uh, they have incentives and things like that. So if you do need private transport cars, and you will in rural areas, uh, and indeed for some people in, in urban areas or suburban areas, uh, then the next best thing you do in terms of um, in terms of impact on the environment and the impact on your own pocket is to um, uh, is to move people uh, towards electric vehicles, and that's part of what's the broadly called the just transition. Yeah. And in this case, everybody's a winner. The environment is a winner, um, and uh, the household is a winner because operating okay. There's a higher cost. Uh, to buying it, but once you have bought it, and if you've bought it with supports from the state like they have in Norway, uh, once you've bought it, then the running costs are very minimal. So that actually, you're right. I mean, those type of services uh, are extremely important uh, to uh, people's living standards, sometimes more so than a pay increase. Again, uh, uh, the average, among our peer group, the average childcare fee is 60 euros a week. Here, right. it's 180 euros a week and even higher in the Dublin areas. In other words, uh, uh, Irish uh, parents pay more than 100 euros a week than if they were living in another uh, high-income uh, EU country. country. Now, I'll tell you this. Very few pay increases could cover that amount. You no. know, that's 5,000. Uh, that's an extra 5,000 a year. You actually provide uh, a material benefit to people's living standards by reducing the cost with affordable childcare, reducing the cost of public transport through affordable fares, uh, providing free or for or you know nominal payments to GP, uh, such as in a, in other countries where it might cost only five or ten euros to go to your GP rather than fifty or sixty euros as it is here in Ireland. They have socialized prescription costs so that your prescription medicine is much cheaper in other countries and in some cases free uh, rather than here. Those are of such a huge benefit, much more so than any pay increase. Absolutely. Another thing, that, this is quite unpopular, but another thing that I was looking at there was the government subsidizing low pay. Pay is so low that you have a family income supplement, for instance, and and that where you you you're working for the for the week or thirty hours or whatever, but the government subsidizes that low pay. Is that not incentivizing um, low pay and encouraging it in uh, in Ireland? In many sectors, that is the case. In many sectors, employers can keep pay down knowing that some of their workers can avail of state supports. Um, uh, however, we have to acknowledge a situation. Where you have a household with children, their costs are going to be far higher than, say, yeah, well, say a couple without children or a single-person household. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 
the market wage cannot doesn't distinguish between a single person household or a couple with both people yeah. working or a couple with children. Um, so in those cases, you will need additional supports. The key thing is to drive up the basic A so that those supports are minimized. Uh, but it's not just, for instance, it's not just um, uh, the state subsidizing employers uh, through, say, things like the family, working family payment, which was yeah. formerly the family income supplement. For instance, tax revenue is lower. Uh, you know, if I, you know, I, if, if I get a pay increase, well, you know, I, I pay additional tax. Uh, yeah. So taxes lower. That's another subsidy. And here, but here's also a thing. Companies that, uh, don't pay wage increases where they can afford them are actually depriving other businesses that are reliant upon workers' purchasing power. In other words, uh, uh, low road employers, uh, actually, uh, you know, shift their costs onto other businesses. Right. Uh, and we don't kind of appreciate that as much because at the end of the day, uh, you know, businesses need people at work with a fair bit of, you know, a decent you know, amount of money in their pockets so they can come into the shops. But if people are unemployed or they're on low pay, that reduces customers to businesses. So it actually is about uh, businesses cannibalizing each other through uh, low pay strategies. There is no, th nobody wins at that game. Just looking at the whole employment um, debate, one of the things that that I think would make a, a great difference to Irish employment is the promotion and incentivization of cooperatives like you would have in Madrigan in uh, the Basque country in Spain, which uh, during the, the crash that time, when there was 24% unemployment in the rest of Spain, that region had 10% unemployment. And the thing is, you're, it's workplace democracy as well, where you're, you're part, you own the, um, the actual means, you're part owner of the company. So you'd have a much more of an incentive to, to make that work rather than being in a, in a low paid job. Cooperatives, how do we promote them or should they be promoted or is that the way forward here for the Irish economy? Well, there's certainly, it would be a great benefit if there were more uh, labor-managed enterprises, labor-managed, usually workers' cooperatives, they can take other forms, yeah. uh, ESOPs and others. There's no doubt that there would be a higher benefit. And you're right to point out that during the financial crash, uh, workers' cooperatives were actually able to survive it better than other firms, uh, simply because they were more flexible in terms of hours and wages, but also because it was the workers themselves that decided. Uh, rather than, you know, and they decided on the basis of solidarity to kind of help each other out because, you know, sometimes with a business, whether it's a cooperative or not, you know, when there's a recession and there's a fall of consumer demand, that puts a pressure on business. So they were able to survive it better because they have a greater work, uh, commitment from their, uh, uh, their, their workforce and they're not reliant upon driving up in the short term high profit levels. And, one of the problems, though, with Ireland in the case of labor-managed enterprises is that we have so few. 
Yeah. And while we do have ag- we have a history of agricultural cooperatives, uh, we don't have uh, a history of uh, worker-owned firms or worker-managed uh, 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 firms. And that's hard to get off the ground, especially since um, also the the there are uh, the statutes governing uh, workers' cooperatives. Uh, you know, they haven't been amended in decades, and they're you know they're really not up to a modern task. Now, I think that that being said, there is still things that the government can do to try to promote them. Uh, they could try to promote them through. Um, Grant funding local authorities who yeah. would work with communities, who would work with uh, workers, who would set up these things, would have tutorials, uh, much in the same way as Enterprise Ireland mentors businesses. You could have a dedicated agencies that would mentor uh, workers uh, cooperatives. So you know that would be one area uh, that where that could work. And actually, in, in talking about the caring professions. There are two or three um, uh, home care cooperatives uh, that have been that that are up and running, and the reason why those are, in the first instance, uh, more promising in terms of uh, expanding workers' uh, ownership, is because uh, they don't need as much capital. You know, yeah. it's not like a manufacturing plant where you have to, you know. You have to have huge amounts of capital to buy in new technology and all that. It's more labor dense, you know. Yeah. Carrying uh, most of the activity is just people on people, yeah. so that makes it a little bit more. So you would actually target sectors and try to get a momentum of experience for it, because the mm-hmm. more enterprise workers cooperatives enterprises there are, the more people will experience that, and they'll say, "Hey, that's a pretty good idea," you know. Uh, I might take a look at maybe trying to work for a workers' cooperative or join with uh, some friends in uh, setting uh, setting up on our, our ourselves. So uh, you will find, in fact, I think it's for instance in Donegal there was the some some decades back there was attempts to establish workers' cooperatives. They can work very well uh, if they are properly supported in areas where people. Uh, want to produce local goods and services to meet local yeah. demand. Uh, so that could be a promising area for uh, places which are never going to get significant levels of foreign direct investment or even large domestic capital investment. But this needs a lot of state support and resources. And I'm not just talking about money, though that's needed. You're talking about you know people who are experienced in it and going out and you know uh, spreading these skills uh, throughout the diff- different communities, uh, so that uh, people themselves can you know have a greater chance of uh, of establishing successful worker-owned enterprises. Yeah, definitely for the rural Ireland, anyways, uh, that is definitely what's, in my opinion, it is what's uh, needed for rural Ireland because foreign direct investment doesn't really want to come here because we don't have internet, we don't have roads, we don't have this, that, or other. But if we organised ourselves in cooperatives, that would create an awful lot of employment. And the Basque country, Madrigan, is a testament to that. But Michael, look, at, we'll leave it there. We've been chatting for about 50 minutes. And I totally enjoyed the conversation. The report is low pay republic we'll have a link for that in the description michael taft money thanks thanks very much for having me on well that's it from us many thanks to you the listener for listening 
Denise O'Toole produced. The music was by DJ Green. You get a link for that in the description. Toga Boogie, Song of Foil. <laughs>